I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on this special bonus episode of We the People, I am so honored to welcome and celebrate the Dean of the Supreme Court Press Corps, the legendary journalist Lyle Denniston, who is retiring next month from regular Supreme Court coverage. Lyle has spent 69 years as a reporter, 58 of them covering the Supreme Court. He began working with us at, at the Constitution Center in 2011 as our constitutional literacy advisor and has been contributing to our blog, Constitution Daily. Um, I'm so honored that he has been our Supreme Court correspondent uh, full-time for the past uh, a bit of time, and I'm so thrilled that although he will conclude his regular duties at the end of July, Lau will continue to write for Constitution Daily whenever the spirit moves him and about any topics he likes. Uh, and now he's joining me to reflect on his extraordinary career and to answer your questions. Lyle, welcome, congratulations, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It's uh, been a genuine pleasure to be a part of uh, the National Constitution Center community. Uh, Constitution Daily is a wonderful platform, and uh, I've had a lot of freedom to write uh, what what occurs to me to write on that, and uh, I, I have always uh, thought that the uh, label for the daily smart conversation about the Constitution was something that really needed to be done, and I was very flattered to be a part of it and look forward to doing even some more. Well, it's been our tremendous honor to host your superb work. Um, this was an exciting week at the end of the Supreme Court term, and on the last day of the term, Chief Justice Roberts appropriately recognized you and your remarkable career in the Supreme Court courtroom. I, I, tell us what he said. Well, um, uh, I wish I could quote it to you verbatim because it was really a very positive statement, but uh, I was a little uh, overwhelmed by it because, uh, you know, the chief always recognizes people uh, on the court staff who have retired, but uh, uh, to reach uh, into the press section and find someone there uh, who was uh, deserving of mention from the bench uh, was startling to me, uh, but uh, he recalled uh, my the uh, broad outlines of my career and uh, uh, said very nice things about uh, uh, the nature of my reporting for the court uh, about the court and uh, uh, it was it was just uh, uh, it, it was certainly a, a, a sudden uh, a change in uh, the mood for me in the courtroom and I uh, I looked up and I uh, happened to notice that. Uh, all of the justices were looking my way and smiling, and uh, I, I, I'm sure there are lawyers in the world who would envy me having that opportunity to get smiles from all across the bench. Well, it's just a beautiful and well-deserved tribute to the unique role you've played and the fact that the justices uh, smile at your coverage, as I do, uh, reminds us that you've really done something unique. And from my perspective as a longtime reader and admirer, I look to you for wisdom, integrity, and for fair-minded constitutional education. But I want to ask you, how have you seen your role? What were you trying to achieve in your coverage, and, and how have you gone about doing that? 
Well, it was. It, 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 I had a very simple aspiration, and this goes way back to uh, my earliest days reporting for a small uh, local newspaper in Nebraska. I always thought it was my supreme obligation to make whatever I was writing uh, intelligible to a lay person who had very little time in their busy day to read a newspaper. Um, and a long time ago, I created, created for myself a mythical reader. It was a milkman who had uh, morning rounds delivering milk to the doorsteps, as it was done in my day, my early day, and had uh, no time for a morning newspaper and had only a little time at the end of his long day to read a newspaper. So I absolutely believed that I had a commitment not to waste his time. So I wanted to write um, at a level that I thought was intelligible, uh, but I always insisted that I not um, move the substance of what I was writing about uh, away from uh, truth and dependability in order to make it more intelligible. So it was always a challenge to write about technical subjects in a non-technical way, and um, most of the time I think I was able to achieve that by uh, consciously avoiding the use of technical words and phrases. And as you know, Jeff, there are many of those in the law. But you can write about the law for uh, a lay reader, and that was always my ultimate aspiration. That is a beautiful aspiration, and you've fulfilled it so nobly by making these complicated concepts accessible to lay readers, always respecting their intelligence and speaking to them in terms that all of us can understand. Uh, I just have to ask the obvious question. Uh, you began covering the court 58 years ago. Is that, is that the 59 term? And, and who was on the court? And what were the leading cases? And what was it like to cover it then? Well, the, uh, the, um, at, at the time that I arrived, the junior justice was Potter Stewart, who had been appointed that year, 1958, um, to the court. Um, Earl Warren was then the chief justice, and we had the array of uh, uh, the uh, the um, wonderful uh, old justices, like we had Hugo Black, um, uh, Felix Frankfurter, the Roosevelt, uh, some of the Roosevelt appointees, um, and uh, Stanley Reed, uh, the very courtly uh, gentleman uh, uh, from the middle border. Um, and um, Potter Stewart and William Brennan was uh, in his third term on the court, I think, when I came. Um, and um, um, uh, the Earl Warren, as the Chief Justice, I think, was probably in his uh, in his fifth term. I think he had come in '53. Uh, unfortunately, I was a little tardy in a arrival for Brown versus Board of Education because. Uh, that had come four years before my arrival, and uh, the second Brown opinion had come uh, two years, uh, 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 three years before my arrival. So um, I was um, able to witness, I guess, the middle stages of the Civil Rights Revolution. And I, I don't know, pick a case from those early years and describe the interaction between the justices on the bench. I'm just dying to ask what Felix Frankfurter and Hugo Black sounded like and, and just take us back to what it was like to be there. Well, um, Hugo Black was always so plain speaking. Um, 
And I, I, as you know, historians know, uh, there was not a great uh, amount of love lost between the two of them. But I always thought um, Felix Franger, Frankfurter was um, a quite condescending member of the court. Um, he seemed to suffer of uh, the presentations by the lawyers uh, uh, not very charitably. Um, and uh, I was aware, of course, of the ideological uh, uh, pulling and hauling between the justices of the court at that time. Um, and uh, I, I was fascinated to see how new junior justices would come on the bench and notice how with every new justice during my uh, time, uh, Justice Brennan would always seem to be taking them under his tutelage uh, to bring them along towards uh, his former jurisprudence. But uh, it was always uh, a marvel to watch uh, Justice Brennan build majorities uh, for the outcomes that he preferred, or at least to try to moderate the outcomes that uh, that he uh, preferred not to join. But um, he used to... Uh, he used to tell his clerks, I was told, that uh, he would hold up five fingers and say, around here, with nine of us, you can do anything with five. Um, so he was always counting to five, and uh, it, it was, it was, an, it was a, a challenge to watch uh, a court that was then quite frequently divided, though it was um, at the high points of the Civil Rights Revolution, it was not deeply divided because the court institutionally was absolutely committed to making Brown work against, uh, as you know, Jeff, an enormous amount of resistance. Was it, it's, it's just fascinating to think about it, was, was it easier for uh, someone like Brennan, like Justice Brennan, to create consensuses that transcended ideological lines back then? And, and how did he do it? What was his secret? Well, I, th I think Brennan was, uh, you know, he was basically an Irish politician uh, with all of the skills of persuasion that uh, are uh, uh, commonly associated with that uh, kind of human being. But uh, uh, Brennan was exceedingly smart, um, and uh, I think he was uh, an absolute genius at uh, looking for and pushing common ground. Um, and and he never did it uh, with the uh, absolute sacrifice of his own jurisprudential principles. He uh, he never abandoned the fundamental liberalism uh, that uh, that he brought to the court. But he had had extensive experience uh, on the New Jersey courts um, and the, uh, building consensus there. So he came very well prepared for the Supreme Court and. Uh, and though he never paraded his intellect in the way that I always thought that Felix Frankfurter did, um, Brennan was always uh, behind the scenes uh, a powerhouse intellectually, and uh, absolutely had to had to be respected. But uh, those, those were uh, those were heady years on the court when they were doing really enormous things um, constitutionally, and it was. It was such a fascinating experience to watch the development of the uh, of the Warren emphases on the rights of criminal suspects, because those were the years, Jeff, as you know, as a historian, those were the years when the court made the Bill of Rights absolutely real 
for uh, people uh, unfortunately caught up in the criminal law because the the absorption of the Bill of Rights into uh, the 14th Amendment concept of liberty was going on very actively during those years, and it was it was fun to kind of keep a uh, keep a uh, little running uh, total of which of the civil rights uh, guaranteed in the Bill of Rights remain not to be applied to the states. And ultimately, as you know, um, all but about uh, two or three of what we might think of um, not disrespectfully were the lesser rights were ultimately applied to, uh, the, uh, to the state governments as well. So that part of the Constitution was really made as real as was uh, um, the, uh, um, the revolution in, in the civil rights movement uh, for uh, minority Americans. Gosh, to watch the Warren Court criminal procedure revolution uh, must have been extraordinary. As you say, uh, I, I, Miranda uh, recognizing uh, the right of suspects to have warnings read to them, uh, the Gideon case uh, involving the right to counsel, Escobedo holding that criminal suspects have a right to counsel during police interrogations. Pick one of those cases. What was it like to hear it come down? What was it like to hear Miranda come down? Well, um, it was it was always uh, it was always uh, a, a a very high drama because uh, we we assumed that the progress towards incorporation, uh, as it's technically called, was going to continue apace. Uh, but we knew actively knew that there would be resistance uh, from within the court uh, because uh, when the when the when the Truman appointees came on the court, um, they were very resistant uh, to uh, uh, moving forward with the. Uh, with the with the uh, uh, black rights revolution, but uh, uh, it was it was pretty apparent that uh, Warren and Brennan had the votes, um, and as he said, you know, you if you have five votes, you can run the place. Um, but uh, it was it, it was not an easy task, I think, uh, to bring about that revolution because they, the 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 resistance, I think, out in the country. Uh, and the resistance politically was very strong because, uh, you know, there there is no great advocacy community, or at least there wasn't in those days, for uh, the criminal uh, element in American society. And so, and it wasn't very long before, you know, we had uh, the Nixon years, which uh, uh, amounted to an ongoing and constant war on the rights of criminal suspects. One of the leading voices of opposition to the Warren Court criminal procedure revolution and to its cases involving uh, political redistricting was Justice John Marshall Harlan II. Uh, he was a, a different kind of conservative from the conservative justices we find today. Tell us about him and, and, and the role he played on the court during this time. Well, you know, it was, it was always uh, uh, important when you were sitting in an oral argument to listen for what John Marshall Harlan would say because um, he was and and he was frequently referred to as a judge's judge by which one does not mean a really narrowing of the capacity but he was always unbelievably well prepared uh, but he had an enormous problem with his eyesight um, and it was almost painful to watch him read while he was on the bench because he had to hold the documents very close uh, in order to read uh, but uh, it, it was um, 
it was a marvel to watch that mind at work. Um, and the, the, the charity um, and goodwill that he had for all of his colleagues. Um, and, and he was incredibly uh, good at mentoring uh, not only the bar, but also his, uh, his more junior colleagues. Um, Harlan was as much, I think, in the modern terms, a giant on the court um, as his grandfather had been on the, on the really old court. A remarkable tribute, given the towering role that the first Justice Harlan uh, held, and so interesting to hear you say that he held his colleagues, even those he disagreed with, in in a great uh, repute. Um, one of our readers uh, has written in. Um, you've just gotten a host of questions in the past twenty four hours. Uh, we've received a whole bunch of them over Twitter and Facebook and email, and 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 one uh, listener asks. What was the reaction to Griswold versus Connecticut at the time? Was it contentious as Roe v. Wade? And tell us about Harlan's role and also about the dissents. Well, um, Griswold has always been controversial because of the uh, of the somewhat open-ended uh, concept um, that, uh, that that the court incorporated in that the the penumbral uh, emanations of uh, the constitutional guarantees and. Uh, Griswold, of course, came at a point when uh, we were moving actively into the women's rights revolution, the equal rights revolution for women, um, and it was uh, it was always apparent that if there were going to be a successful women's rights revolution, it was probably going to have to come from uh, the innovative uh, interpretations of the Supreme Court because the proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution uh, was always uh, uh, a struggle. Uh, it, it moved very rapidly in the uh, early uh, states, but then it slowed down all of a sudden, and uh, the struggle was uh, lost by just a very few votes in a very few states. So if the revolution was to advance, um, it had to do so, um, and I think that the Griswold um, articulation of the concept of privacy, which of course borrows from earlier precedents, including from Harlan, um, and I think its pull against Alman was the, was one of the antecedents to it. But uh, Griswold was a startling decision because I don't think the country was quite prepared. Certainly, the political. Uh, elements in America were not quite prepared for the Supreme Court to do, have declared that uh, that you have uh, a, a right to um, uh, a method of birth control. Um, and so, uh, but, but I think what created the controversy then, and it continues to create controversy in public uh, discourse, is the concept of liberty, uh, which, of course, uh, Justice Kennedy has brought absolutely to its fullest uh, possibilities, uh, particularly in the in the gay rights decisions of modern times. But uh, at the time and since, this idea of, um, of penumbral emanations uh, from uh, um, the words of the Constitution was, I think, deeply offensive to many people who are inclined to read the Constitution much more literally than that. And I'm told, uh, I don't know whether it's still there, but uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has a little um, framed um, 
picture on the wall of his chambers uh, that uh, that kind of is derisive towards uh, a penumbral emanations of, of the Constitution. Yes, I, I, I hear that it says, please don't emanate in my penumbras. <laughs> <laughs> So this vision of Justice Harlan uh, dissenting but also having respect for his more liberal colleagues is so powerful. And one of our listeners asks, what would you identify as the biggest change in the way the members of the court interact with one another over the past 50 years? Has the court become more polarized? If so, how? And uh, how have things changed? Well, um, I I probably am less um, moved by the polarization of the court. because I I remember what it was like when uh, Frankfurter and Black were going back and forth against each other, and uh, I I don't think we see that kind of personal intensity or animosity uh, now. But um, I think what is more evident to me, uh, and this I think changes almost every year more towards the intensity, is that we have an enormously hot bench. Um, you know, some of the great justices like uh, William Brennan were not really very active in questioning the, the council. Uh, but this bench uh, is so active that uh, it's very difficult for lawyers, uh, uh, particularly lawyers who are not as well prepared or experienced as some of the elite core are to keep up with this bench. And I think the half an hour argument uh, has become, the half an hour argument limitation for one side in a case has become a really onerous uh, restriction because of the nature of the uh, questioning from the bench. Um, And polarization to me um, uh, is... uh, it is obviously evident, but it is more uh, philosophical. And I, I suppose that uh, in some ways I'm naive about this, but um, I tend to believe that what goes on in the Supreme Court's polarization is much more a difference in uh, differing philosophical value systems than it is in partisan political preferences. Um, I, I, I have always believed, Jeff, that... Uh, the disciplines that surround being a judge, the discipline of precedent, the the discipline of collegiality and the necessary of composing a multi-member bench, and the discipline of the four corners of the record that counsel make in a case. Those disciplines are very limiting in the opportunity to pursue a private personal value system. Um, you, you've, you've got to persuade eight other colleagues uh, in the Supreme Court, um, and that can be a really challenging task. And uh, the more you isolate yourself in a, uh, in a sector of uh, uh, narrower philosophy, the less influence you have on your colleagues. And so uh, you can see that uh, um, a, a judge... Um, does not have as much impact on the productive uh, outcome of the work of the court if that judge is always predictably uh, in a, a more narrow, narrow element. That does not mean by any sense, in my mind at least, that these judges, uh, justices, are insincere. For example, Justice Clarence Thomas is quite isolated in his philosophy, 
but he is the most imaginative and creative, I think, of these justices in the way he looks at the Constitution and the way he interprets in precedent. So um, I don't mean to, to disparage his work on the court, but he does not have uh, the kind of influence that a John Marshall Harlan uh, or a John uh, or a William Brennan had uh, when they were uh, visibly and operationally more flexible. Uh, Lyle, it is inspiring to hear your uh, faith that uh, over these 50 years, the, the court has been more moved by constitutional methodologies and philosophical differences than partisan ones and in the constraining power of the law. Uh, well, if it's not partisanship that's increased over the past 50 years, what has changed the most? Is, is it media technologies and the way the court is covered and perceived by the public? Is it polarization in the country at large? Or, in fact, have things always been pretty divisive and just the means by which we express that has changed? Well, I, I think the, um, there, there has been one dominating influence, I think, both on press perceptions and on the wide perception in the general public, and that is the Senate confirmation process for new justices. Um, the polarization, the partisan polarization of this country has infected that process to a degree that has almost made it shameless, it seems to me, to watch that process unfold each time it occurs. Uh, and, and the recent episode of holding a seat open uh, uh, for the next uh, president for all of that time is a perfect illustration of how um, uh, that, that process has fallen into uh, uh, complete disrepute in my personal perception. But uh, it has been an enormous challenge journalistically to keep a focus on uh, the work of the court without being influenced by the partisan polarization that comes with uh, the uh, nominating and confirmation process. Um, and I think the press has something to answer for um, in something that they regularly do, which I absolutely refuse to do as a journalist, and that is to identify members of the court with the party of the president who nominated them. Uh, and I'm referring, in, obviously, in the popular uh, vernacular, to referring to someone as a Republican justice or a Democratic justice, because the, um, their patron in the White House was a partisan uh, Republican or a partisan Democrat. I have no doubt whatsoever, none at all, that every president has a partisan aspiration for his nominees to the court and wants them to uh, prolong that president's record on the, the substantive policy issues. But I am absolutely persuaded that we in the press contribute to the notion that it is a partisan-driven court by using the idea that a person is slavishly going to carry out uh, the agenda of one party or the other. And the more polarization there comes with the name Republican or Democrat in the political community, the more the public is going to read a newspaper story or hear a television or radio story that refers to the Republican or Democratic justices, the more likely they're going to perceive that this is a partisan-driven court. And so when a case comes along like Bush versus Gore, 
or on, on, on the counting of votes in the in the Florida primary in 2000, or a case like uh, Citizens United versus Federal Elections Commission, when cases like those come along, and you get outcomes that appear to be uh, positive for one partisan uh, inclination and negative for the other. There are too many journalists who contribute to the idea that those decisions were driven by partisan value systems. And um, I'm stubborn about this, Jeff, uh, and uh, I'm going to, for, you know, as I continue, if I, if I do, to write about the court, and I, I plan to do so, I simply never refer to a justice as a Democratic or Republican appointee because I'm aware of how journalism can affect public perceptions, and I'm not going to be a party uh, to contributing to the notion that the court makes decisions in order to serve partisan values, because I'm absolutely persuaded that they do not. And, you know, I have been privileged over the years to be to have access to some of the justices' private papers to show how the process works, and I can tell you it is very, very seldom that you will see partisanship at work in the exchanges that are, have been carried on privately in developing outcomes. Now, I don't know what has been said in private conversations between justices, and there are occasional little notes that you will see that betray a kind of a partisan uh, uh, inclination, but the process itself works, I think, remarkably well uh, to keep those influences from being consequential. Thank you so much for that noble uh, insistence on refusing to in- to identify judges by their partisan backgrounds. Uh, I, of course, I'm so thrilled that you'll continue to do that as you write for Constitution Daily. And we here on the We the People podcast and in all of our National Constitution Center content will follow the Lyle Denniston rule and will not refer to judges by Good. The, Good. Part, the party of the presidents who appointed them. So many questions from our Listeners, uh, here's one that we're all eager to hear. Uh, What's the most significant and important case that you've covered? And take us into the courtroom as it came down. What was it like to cover that case? Well, um, I I, I think I have to put at the top of my list Bush versus Gore because um, and and, and part of that is historical. Um, uh, One of the things that I have always done, Jeff, is to try to keep myself fully informed on Supreme Court history uh, and constitutional history. And I went into the coverage of Bush against Gore uh, well uh, prepared on what had happened with Tilden Hayes in 1876, uh, when, in fact, we got a president uh, literally hours before the inauguration was to take place, and then only as a consequence of a somewhat rump commission that was appointed uh, to settle the electoral vote count. Um, and uh, so when it appeared that uh, the political process was probably not going to be able to resolve uh, the uh, Florida recount question because of the partisan uh, makeup of Congress. And remember, the House was controlled by the Republicans, the Senate by the Democrats. The One of the candidates was the presiding officer of the Senate, Vice President Gore. So I became persuaded very early on 
that if this crisis is going to be averted, and I do regard it as a constitutional crisis, um, because this country won't do very well if it goes for a period without a president functioning, I became persuaded that this was going to be resolved as a constitutional matter, and it was indeed ultimately done uh, by the court. But uh, I think it was also the most challenging case I ever covered because it began and ended in a space of just 36 days. And I have never in my life as a journalist covering the law observed higher quality legal advocacy than was done by lawyers on both sides and by judges on every court that that went through. It was a remarkable exhibition of the highest qualities of of the advocacy profession and of the judicial profession, and uh, it, it and it was it was fun to cover because uh, everything was happening so rapidly that you really had to uh, strain to keep up. Um, and covering it on the last few days uh, around the, the Supreme Court as we were waiting for the decision to come down was like being on a um, border uh, between two hostile countries. The Klieg lights of the uh, uh, television trucks uh, were set up all around the exterior of the court, uh, and everybody was rushing this way and that. Um, the uh, hallways of the court were filled with discarded pizza boxes because uh, uh, the press corps really swelled to uh, a great large number, and television always operates on any great story, basically on a diet of pizza, uh, the television crews and all the interns and the entourage. But it was a very exciting time, and I remember at about 10.15 on December 12, 2000, uh, um, uh, when the uh, one of the press officers of the court came running down the hallway holding up copies of the opinion, um, and someone shouted out, well, what is it? What is it? And uh, this uh, young man said, look to page 13. And we all grabbed our copies and looked at page 13, and the bottom line read, it is so ordered, which, is, of course, <laughs> is always the way that uh, that uh, court opinions end, so that uh, there was no guidance at all, and I think maybe it was a, a humorous gesture by the uh, young public information officer to uh, make us uh, think that we were being given guidance. But uh, it was easy to figure out, though I must say I had a 20-minute debate with my bureau chief about whether the process was at an end, because he had read the uh, news accounts that said the court was remanding the case, but I finally persuaded him that in this case there was nothing left to decide. But it was it was a historic moment. It was a, a magnificent experience journalistically. Uh, it was it was wonderful to watch uh, a reprise of uh, 1876. So far as the, there were parallels between the two, and uh, uh, I, I shall always remember in great detail what I was feeling like, what I was. Uh, doing um, uh, day and night, uh, you know, coming home, spending a couple of hours and rushing back. Beautifully described. Uh, it was indeed an amazing time. That was when, when I was covering the court uh, full time. And I remember being in the Supreme Court cafeteria with the great late Tony Lewis and Linda Greenhouse and just how surprised and shocked we were at the outcome. Um, another listener asks, from the many Supreme Court terms that you've covered, uh, 1995, 
2016, uh, 1963, what was your favorite and why? Well, um, I, I don't know that I have any favorite. You know, one of one of the things that happens almost every year uh, in the press room at the Supreme Court is reporters will stand around and wring their hands about next term is really going to be a dog. Uh, DOG is a, is a phrase that we often use in the press room when the court isn't going to be deciding a great uh, case like Bush versus Gore or a big death penalty case or a big abortion case. Uh, but it always turns out that every term uh, comes out to being uh, one that really has an incredible, uh, interesting, incredibly interesting uh, and challenging opi- opinions to cover. Um, I would, I literally would have to go through uh, my notes almost term by term uh, uh, to remember the ones. You know, the, uh, the years when the, the uh, criminal law cases were coming down, uh, when women's rights cases were coming down, uh, uh, when uh, when we've, we we had the first inclinations uh, of the court to find. Uh, the rights for gay people in the Constitution. I, I remember the false starts that the gay rights movement made uh, uh, in the in the, in the, in the uh, uh, the first case in that line, and uh, so it was a fascinating thing. But my own sense about it, uh, Jeff, is that terms tend to flow together uh, rather than be episodic because. Um, cases build on each other, um, and you know we we go from one president to another, um, and um, uh, the 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 mandates from the past are always omnipresent, and so um, I, I tend to think that it's a mistake for me as a journalist to look at each case in kind of isolation. And, you know, it's almost as if each case were like a, a newborn baby being dropped on your doorstep, you know, fresh, beautiful, lovely, uh, and and uh, to be admired for its own sake, for that baby's own sake. Um, I tend to look at every case as where does it fit in history? Um, is this an advance? Is this a step back? Um, is it is it uh, honorable to a prior president? What's it going to mean for society compared to what the prior approaches meant? So I, I think in, in that approach has led me to try to, and not only to try to, but in fact uh, actually see every term uh, uh, mixed in and bolded in with, with each other. Uh, and I've tried always not to try to uh, not to be involved really emo- emotionally what, with what uh, the court does. But occasionally, when you're sitting in the court and you see someone who you know is genuinely affected by it, it really is a moving experience. Because I remember when some of the gay rights cases came about to see some of the leaders of that um, bar. Uh, and weeping openly in the court's uh, uh, courtrooms, sitting in the bar section, um, and that that was a very moving experience because you you were you were not only then a witness to history, you were you were an, an active witness uh, to, uh, to to human uh, fulfillment. That's just beautifully said and recalled. Um, if, if that's one of the more honorable memories that you have, uh, what would be one of the more dishonorable cases? Um, Well, I guess probably it would be, 
I think it would probably be um, the Citizens United decision on campaign finance because I knew that the court was was moving more uh, towards a First Amendment jurisprudence uh, that was almost certainly going to have an impact upon campaign finance. Uh, but um, I don't I don't regard that. Uh, I think it's wrong for me to to suggest that he was dishonorable. But but I thought there was uh, a a kind of uh, conceptual mis. Uh, uh, misconstruction of uh, free speech doctrine. Um, it's, uh, it's always troubled me, as it did uh, uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, to think of uh, the expenditure of money, even in the pursuit of a political end, as speech. Um, money is, to me, more often than not, uh, uh, a mode of commercial uh, uh, expression and not uh, communication of ideas. I can see how you can make the argument, and it's not a totally implausible argument, but it, uh, it seemed to me at that time, and still does, as uh, quite manipulative. I think to the sa- in the same way about uh, uh, the um, District of Columbia gun rights decision in uh, 2008, um, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, when I think... Um, the the court really did take the history, and there is an enormously long history on, uh, behind the Second Amendment. And I thought the court was reaching for the end result in that case so eagerly and so energetically uh, that uh, it, it took some considerable liberties with the history. Um, uh, but uh, I do hesitate uh, to say that uh, those uh, would be on my list of uh, ones that uh, that uh, I, I didn't particularly admire, because as a reporter, it's not my job to admire uh, uh, or, or, or to, uh, uh, to to fail to admire outcomes, because it's my job to translate uh, without uh, infusing it with my own values. Here, here, and that's a wonderful... Uh, modeling for our listeners of the ability to separate your uh, constitutional from your personal views. Um, the role of the chief, you knew and covered uh, Chief Justice Warren, Chief Justice Berger, and Chief Justice Rehnquist. Uh, tell us about what they were like on a personal level and how important was the differences in their leadership styles? Well, I, I think um, you know, I, I also covered Warren for, uh, for uh, a number of Really remarkable years. I covered until he retired um, from from '58 on. Uh, so that was, I guess, a period of about eight years when they tried to put Abe Fortas up as his successor. Um, Warren was a, a very warm and friendly uh, person, and uh, and he was really easy to be with. Um, but we always used to say in the press room, um, if you want to uh, have some time with Earl Warren, offer him a sandwich because he, he's a great guy for going to lunch with. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, um, uh, uh, Warren Berger uh, was uh, was a, a very remote person. Um, he was not popular around the courthouse. We all knew that. Um, he, he, we all knew that he was manipulating the voting patterns in order to uh, control the function of assigning the drafting of opinions. Um, he had a very hostile relationship with the press. He, uh, he, um, he um, 
was 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 barely tolerant uh, much of the time uh, of what the media do. He made some gestures that were helpful to us, um, but uh, he. Um, he, he was he, he was it was not comfortable working in uh, his courthouse because we knew uh, how he felt about us. Um, though that's not an important uh, fact because uh, uh, who cares what the chief justice thinks about you? The, your job is not to be loved uh, or admired or 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 coddled in the courthouse. But we knew that he was hostile to uh, to our um, having uh, access to much around the courthouse. Uh, Rehnquist uh, was a delight to work with because uh, he had the the most precious sense of humor, um, and uh, he was uh, he he was very very conservative, and he could be very stern on the bench, but uh, privately he was wonderfully engaging. Um, he, um, um, he 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 would tell stories. His stories were wonderful. They were they were not quite as rich as. Uh, uh, Thurgood uh, Marshall's stories were, but Bill, but Bill Rehnquist always had great stories. And I hope my own audience will forgive me for referring to justices by their first names, because uh, I, I, I guess it's an old habit uh, in journalism uh, um, that the way you look at people in public service is parallel rather than vertical. But uh, uh, John John Roberts. Um, uh, is also he uh, can be in private uh, a very uh, a friendly person. Um, I admire his capacity these days uh, to keep control of the oral argument because uh, the, the, this group of justices is is like herding cats um, in oral argument, and uh, and he does a remarkable job of that. I I think as, as a matter of fact, John Roberts has probably had to. Uh, forfeit a great many questions that he would like to put to counsel in oral argument because he spends quite a good deal of his time uh, being the traffic cop. But uh, uh, he, he, he is, I think John is probably going to go on uh, and uh, uh, achieve um, in the estimate of history um, the rank of being a great chief justice because he's, he's young enough, he's healthy enough, uh, he's going to have a very long tenure. And I think his capacity um, to uh, to lead the court um, and to constantly try to persuade the court uh, to move away from these uh, uh, adding to any perceptions of its being a partisan-driven court. Um, I think that's a tribute to his leadership, and I think that will be more important uh, as we see new justices come to the court in uh, in future years, at least until uh, the political community cleans up its act, cleans up its act a little better. Um, it, it's meaningful and significant to hear your your high estimation of of the chief justice. I uh, share your admiration for his aspiration to get his colleagues to converge around narrow or unanimous opinions that will transcend partisanship. Will he be able to and inclined to achieve that goal if the composition of the court shifts and Justice Kennedy retires? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting uh, and instructive uh, to watch the voting pattern when um, the uh, the conservative bloc has a solid fifth. Um, because um, I think Kennedy has probably had a great deal of influence on John Roberts in the substantive work of the court. Uh, I think he has been 
quite significantly uh, a moderating influence on John's conservatism. And and I, I think John Roberts is very conservative in his own instincts, his own philosophical instincts. But I think um, uh, uh, Anthony Kennedy, who is uh, really an institutionalist, he is, Kennedy is so devoted to the court and its work, and he has been a moderating influence on uh, on the Chief Justice. I think yeah. if if there is a new justice um, who follows, uh, let's say, uh, in the pattern of justices um, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. Um, and I'm listing them in alphabetical order. Um, if, if, if a new justice replacing Kennedy uh, joins up with that group, then I'm going to be very interested to see whether or not anybody on the court uh, uh, outside of, the, of the, that new group of four will have any moderating influence on the chief. I'm inclined to think that he is is now confident enough in his leadership and in his uh, in his overall jurisprudential record that he is going to, going to continue to be um, to a degree uh, and maybe to a substantial degree uh, a moderating influence on the court. Uh, I don't think he wants to uh, uh, have it uh, begin to develop uh, that this is a a Republican court uh, that is going, only going to do service uh, on behalf of Republican causes. Um, so, um, but it, it may t- it may take the influence of uh, somebody like a Stephen Breyer, for example, uh, or a Ruth Ginsburg, while Ruth remains on the court. Um, to try to, uh, uh, in the conference discussions, to try to uh, uh, moderate the effect of uh, of the conservative bloc, because uh, there is no question, and we've seen it already uh, in, in very, very well illustrated ways, uh, how conservative Justice Gorsuch apparently is, uh, and we have no doubts on that score about Justices Alito and Thomas. And so um, a replacement for Kennedy is going to be uh, potentially a huge uh, potential shift in the court. Another question from a listener. Of the justices no longer on the court, uh, who was your favorite and why? Well, I think my uh, my personal favorite in terms of uh, dealing with someone as a human being uh, was uh, probably Lewis Powell, because uh, Lewis was the gentlest spirit um, that I have ever known. He, uh, but he also had a del- delightful sense of humor. Um, and um, he was the first of the modern swing justices. Um, so to watch uh, Lewis work on the court and to uh, uh, move back and forth between the two quite distinctly defined blocks uh, was was a, a, a remarkable experience for me and for other journalists and for uh, anybody watching the court closely because Lewis was absolutely genius at straddling, um, and it wasn't because he lacked uh, a commitment to uh, uh, jurisprudential regularity. It was because Lewis was capable of seeing um, uh, virtue in uh, almost anything, uh, and he could look for ways. Uh, to try to knit together uh, two quite uh, uh, definably uh, uh, devoted blocks of, of his colleagues. Um, 
And uh, he introduced, really, the modern concept of the swing justice. Um, Jeff, you're more of a historian than I am. Uh, there may have been a justice in the past who was as good at it as he was, but uh, uh, he introduced it for me. Um, and then, of course, he was followed in that role by Justice O'Connor very successfully, and then finally by uh, Justice Kennedy. Um, and, you know, I've sometimes wondered... Um, as I've been anticipating the post-Kennedy court, um, would there be a new uh, centrist justice um, who would uh, uh, who would uh, uh, become the swing justice? And I, I think Justice Kagan has the capacity to do so. Uh, I think Justice Breyer does. Um, uh, if <laughs> and I say this kindly, I hope. Um, if Justice Breyer were a more intellectually disciplined member of the court, because uh, uh, he tends to be the absent-minded professor, and his uh, his mode of thinking and asking questions um, uh, is, shall I put it charitably, somewhat less than precise. Um, so I don't know that he has, just in his personal character, um, the um, what it takes to be a swing justice and uh, and to move. But I do think he has. Um, in, in terms of the, the the basic core of his jurisprudence, I do think he has the capacity to become more of a centrist, and and I think it's already clear in in her time on the court that Justice Kagan does too. And and by the way, that's that's a really remarkable development because here is a member of the Supreme Court who never sat one day on any court as a judge, and so she is a remarkable judge now. What makes a remarkable judge? Well, uh, the the degree of preparation for oral argument, uh, the capacity to uh, uh, write opinions that bring uh, a, a together a, a collection of five, or usually when we get a plurality, a collection of at least four. Um, I think the capacity to shape oral argument. Um, by being uh, really on point, um, I, you know, one one of the justices um, who um, I thought really was an, a, an incredible leader on the bench was David Souter, um, uh, and and David Souter is not well known, and he won't be well known in history because uh, I think unfortunately he left the court far too soon. He had much much more to give. Uh, but I always noticed that David Souter was quite clearly and quite evidently the best prepared member of the court for oral argument. And he didn't speak a lot, but whenever he spoke, he got absolutely to the heart of the matter. Um, and he was he was a genuine leader on the court. And I think it is very important for a judge who wants to be a leader of the court to realize that the very first time that the justices have an opportunity seriously to discuss the substance of a case and the issues in a case is oral argument. They don't do a lot of that before they go to the bench for oral argument. They don't do much discussion when they're granting review. They don't have a lot of between-chambers discussions. But once they go to the bench, that is a conversation between them, and it's that conversation that shapes the subsequent discussion in the private conference. And a justice who is able to steer 
the oral argument uh, uh, in a way that helps shape the agenda for the subsequent conference is a justice who can make an enormous contribution. And I, I think that's what Kennedy has been able to do. That's what O'Connor, that's what Powell did. And I think it's already evident that that's quite clearly what, uh, what Kagan is able to do a lot of the time. Um, but also being very good-humored, uh, the capacity to uh, accept uh, the genuine humanity of all of your colleagues, uh, uh, to, to, to be a friend, in other words, to everyone, no matter um, how differently you may look at the law. Beautiful definition. Um, a related question from a listener. Most underappreciated justice you've worked with? Underappreciated. Um, I, I guess I would say it is probably Powell because um, uh, because of the enormity of his capacity to to move between the two wings of the court. But I don't I don't know that the hus- history regards him as a giant. Um, the the swing role is. Uh, is, is programmatically important uh, because it has an enormous impact on outcomes, um, but um, but uh, but it, it takes a particular genius to be able to do that, uh, and and not just look like a, a, a chameleon who's uh, trying to uh, uh, sense how the wind is blowing. Um, uh, I I think that um, that. Lewis Powell's uh, rank in history is probably going to just grow and grow and grow. Um, I think Thurgood Marshall was seriously underestimated uh, from the point of view of his humanity. Um, I I was never profoundly impressed uh, by uh, Thurgood Marshall's scholarship, but uh, his capacity to see the human dimensions of the law is I think absolutely unparalleled, and I think I think over time his uh, his reputation will grow. Um, uh, but I think there are other justices whom I covered um, whose reputations are uh, are already sliding uh, uh, sliding down the scale. And uh, you know the the Truman justices uh, were in many ways uh, almost a disgrace to the court, um, and um, and tragically. Uh, the the decline of Justice Whitaker, Charles Whitaker from Missouri, and mostly I think because of emotional uh, and physical reasons. Um, but um, he he had a very miserable five years on the court. Um, but uh, I think the Truman justices were not, uh, by and large, up to the task uh, of, uh, of being a, a quality Supreme Court justice. Lyle, in this, I would like this golden conversation to continue uh, forever because it's so riveting. But we need to wrap up. I think the the final question, uh, as you as as you give some parting wisdom to our listeners, uh, is this: uh, as I hear you, you you sound um, optimistic and idealistic about the role the court has played in American society over the past uh, fifty and more years uh, and its ability to transcend politics and to rule on the basis of law as you look to the future are you uh able to retain that uh idealism or not well i am i i, I am in, uh, in almost total dismay about our politics as such um, um i as a citizen um, not as a journalist i am deeply troubled about what has happened in our political culture 
But what I think sustains me and has sustained me over those um, six decades of watching the court up close is the degree to which the Supreme Court as an institution has demonstrated its fidelity to the Constitution. Um, and uh, believing, as I do, in the absolute genius of the Constitution itself, not only the ancient Constitution, but the Constitution as it has been uh, amended uh, since the founding, um, and the capacity of the court to uh, to stay within that document and within the spirit of that document and to treat it with the kind of not only uh, the reverence to which it is absolutely entitled, but to treat it as a working mechanism of, of government um, and, and, and to make the parts of our government work in a way that is, I believe, and has been absolutely faithful uh, to, the, uh, to the document itself and to the founding spirit. But if it ever happens um, in my time or beyond me, um, that the the court itself forfeits uh, its fidelity to the Constitution. Um, I'm afraid uh, that uh, our American polity is uh, it will be in very deep peril. Lyle, thank you for that inspiring, moving, and galvanizing uh, call to action to all of our listeners and to all American citizens to keep the faith that you have demonstrated during your shining career about the possibility of citizens converging together around this document of human freedom that unites us. Lyle, your career is a tribute to your integrity, your decency, your commitment to constitutional education, and you have enlightened citizens across America and around the world about the workings of this fundamental and important institution of American government and the Constitution, the Supreme well, Court. Well, and I've, I've had a great time doing it. It's <laughs> been, um, among all of the attributes, it has been a tremendous journey. Well, it's going to continue, and we're so thrilled that you will be continuing to write for Constitution Daily, and I will look forward with great avidity and gratitude every time you are moved Thank you, to Jeff. share your you wisdom. You are most kind, and I do appreciate it a great deal. Thank you so much for all you've done for the Supreme Court and America. Okay. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash constitutionweekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. That means we receive little government support. We rely on the generosity and engagement and commitment and passion of people around the country who are also inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.